big rocks and all that sort of thing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and uh, welcome to a very special edition of uh, the Mick Wall podcast. It's actually a, a joint effort today. I've joined forces with my my young friend in Dublin, Fergal Trainer, of the famous That Fecking Metal podcast. So it's the Mick Wall podcast, but it's simultaneously That Fecking Metal podcast. And, and Fergal's going to tell you why we're doing this. Yes. Uh, so we've been trying to put this together for a while. Uh, there were various cancellations on, I think, both of our parts. More recently, mine. Just you, Fergal. I was always <laughs> ready to go. Yes. Um, so there will be a mixture of, of fact and fiction in this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this is to discuss um, one of the most celebrated Irish rock musicians that's ever lived and unfortunately died almost 37 years ago. That's going to play a part in this um, episode and our discussion as well. And that is, of course... Phil, and I used to always pronounce his name as Linnet, as does everybody who lives in Ireland. And I used to notice that you, Mick, always pronounced it as Linet. And it used to kind of wind me up because I thought you were wrong. <laughs> and it used to get under my skin. Yes, but you know, Fergal, as you know, I'm never wrong. Well, Actually, I w- hang on. Yeah, go on, go on. I will mention that I, I, was recently, I was recently watching the documentary Songs for a While I'm Away, which features his daughters, Kathleen and Sarah. We learned, the viewers of that documentary learned that uh, it's actually pronounced Linet and that he always hated when people referred to him as Linet and it's very much pronounced Linet. So that was something new for me. I don't know how comfortable I am saying that, having led an entire life of saying it the other way, the wrong way, but which everyone uses in Ireland that I've ever known. But I used to see people in documentaries or hear people on podcasts like you, uh, maybe American people as well, um, and they'd always say Linet and I'd be like, no. But it turns out that that's actually wrong. Or sorry, that's actually well, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's funny, you know, because uh, I used to... No, I don't about get wound up, but it, I always used to jar at me whenever I heard people call him Phil. Because when I met him, he once said to me, my friends call me Philip. Okay. Um, and having said that, I never heard any of his friends ever call him Philip. Um, apart from Eric Bell, maybe, um, I was going to say Brian Downey, but I don't think, I don't think Brian did either. Definitely not Scott Gorham and definitely not Robbo. Hmm. Um, so my friends call me Philip, but I, 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 I barely remember anybody calling him Philip other than, uh, maybe once in my whole life. Okay. It's a bit like with David David Bowie, mm. uh, who I was a huge fan of as a, as a younger guy, teenager, and um, I always called him Bowie. Yeah. 
and and I hated it when people called him Bowie. I just thought, oh, for, you know, it's Bowie. And then sometime in my 20s or 30s, reading about his story, you know, and they say, oh, he took the name of the Bowie knife. Yeah. And then I actually met him and asked him, and he said, Bowie. So now I've got the reverse. You know, Ricky yeah. Gervais, who's a, who's a huge Bowie fan, always says Bowie. Yeah, I've noticed. And I could... I could I could slap him for doing that, you know. <laughs> I understand, but it's weird, isn't it? it? It gets on your tits. Yeah, but then I find, actually, maybe you don't, this doesn't bother you as much, but I find when I'm pronouncing people's names on a podcast, I can get quite self-conscious then thinking about whether or not I'm pronouncing it correctly. And I'll, I'll often look it up and there'll be mixed results. Like it's people are like certain it's this way and they're certain it's that way. So I just kind of lead into it and go, I don't know which way it is, but I'm just going to say it like this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think I think of that scene in Pulp Fiction where um, the Bruce Willis character has just knocked that guy out in the ring and he's now on the run and he lands mm. on this taxi driven by this South American taxi driver woman. Yeah. And they're talking and she's like, Bush, because his name's Butch. Yeah. Bush, Bush. And she starts talking about names. And he said... Uh, this is America, baby. Names don't mean shit. Um, and, and I think that's quite a good metaphor for the modern world. You can be whoever you want, change your name. Um, anyway, so Phil, Philip, Linnet, Linet. Um, why don't we start with you explaining what Thin Lizzy, how you, your first experience of Thin Lizzy, because over here in England, it's, it's, we all would share of a certain age, we would share how we first got to know of him and Thin Lizzy. But sure. what about yep. uh, a, a younger guy like yourself in Dublin? Um, true, like many bands, uh, I first was exposed to Thin Lizzy through a compilation album that my brother had called Wild One. And um, I remember uh, there was a UK television show called Gladiators. I'm sure you remember it. Um, and Oh, yeah, the, the wrestlers. Well, well wrestlers. yeah, it was more Gladiators. like a, the public would compete against these people in, in various feats of strength and activities, whatever. And one song that they always played in that when, when the Gladiators ran out was The Boys Are Back in Town. And I didn't know who this was right. by or what it was. I was eight years old. But my brother was playing a CD one time and he was playing the full song of The Boys Are Back in Town. And I was like, whoa, 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 that's the song from Gladiators. And he's like, no, <laughs> this is Thin Lizzy. And I was like, right, okay. So um, I remember playing that CD and like copying it onto a cassette when I was younger. Um, and there were songs that jumped out at you, like Emerald, uh, Cowboy Song, and The Boys Are Back in Town. And then Whiskey in the Jar, which I was familiar with as well. So you couldn't avoid that song growing up in Dublin. Um, again, I wouldn't have known who was doing that particular rendition of it, but that's certainly the one I was familiar with, with all of the kind of uh, guitar riffing and stuff at the start. Um, so yeah, from an early age, I would have known who they were. It wasn't until I got into rock music kind of on my own terms that I properly started investigating the band and buying their albums and stuff. And I noticed then um, that my brother also had Live and Dangerous. Oh, now you're talking. And um, I, I never went beyond the greatest hits in the early days with, with bands. I just kind of pick up my brother's CD, listen to it and go, oh, deadly. Yeah, that's Tim Lizzy. Um, but I started listening to Live and Dangerous. And then there was a compilation album out in like 2004 
called Tin Lizzy Greatest Hits, but it was a double CD. And my friends and I all bought that. And it had like a, like a career retrospective. Um, and it featured songs from like towards the end of their career as well, like Renegade and uh, Thunder and Lightning and Cold Sweat. And I, find, I found I really enjoyed those songs. So when I went and investigated Tin Lizzy, I went out and bought albums like Renegade, Thunder and Lightning, and then worked my way back, kind of, um, which I, I kind of tended to do sometimes with bands because I'd be like, I want the stuff that's less known um, and more recent, and then I'll go back to the classics after that. So that's kind of a synopsis of my journey with Tin Lizzy. Well, for me, um, it was Whiskey in the Jar, um, mm. uh, which was a song I was already familiar with because my father, who used to play Irish and Scottish folk music in various yeah. pubs and clubs, uh, him and his rag tackle, rag taggle band would play it, but they'd do like the Dubliners version, you know. And I was going over, you know. Yeah. So um, to hear it done in that kind of rock style was really interesting. And I remember I bought the single when it was in the charts. So we're talking early 73. And. Um, but I was very intrigued by the B side, which was Black Boys on the Corner. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and so Whiskey in the Jar was what it was. It was kind of like a novelty record. Mm. But the B side was an original, and uh, it was very kind of Hendrixy and uh, rock, uh, heavy rock. Yeah, and uh, I thought, wow, that's interesting. I really liked it, mm. so I started paying attention. And in those days, uh, they were very popular on Radio Luxembourg, yeah. which was the kind of uh, where where you know Luxembourg was like Radio One, but they played more album tracks. Yeah, and their top forty was very similar, but a little bit hipper. Okay. They'd have American records in there. And- it, it always comes up Radio Luxembourg um, when people are talking about <laughs> their early music influences and stuff like that, or, or where they first heard X band or whatever. It always, always tends to come up. Well, because Radio One was very BBC, still is, but was even more BBC in those days. You know, you'd have to, you'd have Engelbert Humperdinck played next to Gary Glitter, played next to David Bowie. <laughs> um, um, Luxembourg wasn't like that. Mm. Um, they just played good stuff. And um, one of their DJs was Kid Jensen, who we now know as David Jensen, okay. who did end up on Radio 1, and he's still out there. Yeah, um, But he was big on Thin Lizzy. And... Uh, there was a follow-up to Whiskey in the Jar, which was a big flop. Rudolph's Tango or something? Randolph's Tango. Um, But he would always play that. It was kind of like a Rod Stewart, you wear it well type thing. Big flop. Um, And then the next album, I can't remember. Was it Vagabonds of the Western World? Yeah. That was the final one with the original lineup. Right, and they, uh, I look back now and I realise it would have been decided beforehand, but I didn't know that as a kid. But Kid Jensen had Lina and Robbo on the show, and of course it was raucous. Hmm. But they did this thing where you could 
vote for which track should be the next single. And they played The Rocker and a couple of others. Uh, and it was like, The Rocker, that's the one, The Rocker. And it came out, that's the one that everybody's voted for, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it did become the next single. And it was a great track, but again, mm. not a hit. But um, around that time, my dad, because he had a younger guy, younger Irish guy suddenly in his group, who was really into Rod Stewart. So my dad got into Rod Stewart. That was weird. Um, but then this younger guy also got into Thin Lizzy and Horse Slips. Remember Horse oh, yeah. Slips? And my dad really liked Horse Slips because there was a lot of more traditional Irish music in that. And um, and the next thing, Thin Lizzy, because Vagabonds, well, all of Thin Lizzy in those days had that Irish huge Irish influence mm. so there was all that going on and Kid Jensen actually had a, a spoken word part on Vagabonds um, and so very much on the periphery was this group Thin Lizzy that you never knew if they were going to make it, probably not but I was always kind of had my antenna attuned and then in the summer of 76 which happened to be the first summer I lived away from home the boys are back in town. And I lived in this big hippie house. It had formerly been a, a, like a guest house, a and b So it was quite big. And we're all sitting on the floor in this huge lounge watching this tiny old telly. And it's Top of the Pops and, the, and it's Thin Lizzy. The boys are back in town. And it wasn't, they weren't in the studio. It was a clip. And the whole room went wild. Like, this is the fucking real deal, you yeah. know? And um, and I agreed. So I went out and got the Jailbreak album, and I just loved it. And then in October, November that same year, 76, they put out Johnny the Fox. They would put out records like within six months of each other. Yeah. And they had Don't Believe a Word on that, which was another great track, uh, a hit single, Top of the Pops, blah, blah, blah. And then Out of the Blue... Uh, a, a, a guy I knew, I didn't know him hugely well, but he'd come round the house. In those days, no social media. People just would knock on the door. Oh, I, I know Bob. Oh, you better come in then. Horrifying to think of now. Yeah, and they'd stay for five days, you know, <laughs> six months or something. Um, yeah, man, come on in, you know. Um, it always strangers wandering around the whole time. Mm. And one of these guys, Pete, who I did get to know a bit, um, he was writing for Sounds magazine, Pete Makovsky. Yeah. And I remember thinking, God, what a terrible job that must be. Can you imagine going to a show and enjoying yourself and then having to come home and write about it like homework, you know? <laughs> I just thought, poor guy, you know? I mean, because uh, I had stopped reading them by then. And um, he said, look, I've got a spare ticket to see Thin Lizzy at the Hammersmith Odeon. Do you want to come? I went, yeah. I'd never seen them before. And we were in the balcony and I just remember they came on. They had the, the, the like the police lights and this siren. And then suddenly the opening chords to jailbreak. Fucking Brilliant. hell, man. I mean, yeah. I was, I was out of my seat like this. Yeah. So was everybody. 
except next to me, Pete, who's still sat in his chair, because he's uh, he's seen a million shows at this point. Plus, he's seen Thin Lizzy a million times. And it's a, a busman's holiday for him. Yeah, and I couldn't understand it. What's wrong with Pete? He's he's not well, you know. Mm. Anyway, fantastic show. Uh, and we're leaving, and I'm kind of like, well, you know, how do we get home? And he said, he's talked like that, Pete. And he goes, uh, now I'm going to go to the party. I went, oh, what party? Yeah, for the band. For the band? Um, and he got us a ride, uh, some fabulous sort of people. I mean, I was 18. He was maybe 20. And the fabulous people were all in their 20s, so mm. sort of older to me. Mm. And they all knew each other, and they all kind of knew the deal. I knew nothing. And we go to this party, and it is the full-on rock and roll party. Um, George Best is there. Jeez. Alex Alex Higgins. Right. Um, all the best drinkers. Loads, yeah, a lot of page three girls from The Sun. Um, and Pete, I'm I'm in Pete's shadow, just following, you know. And he goes straight over to Lina. All right, Phil. She was like, "Ah, oh, fuck off, Pete." You know. And uh, this is Mick. Hello, Mick. You know. I was like, oh, Phil. Yeah. Um, Did you say my friends call me Michael? <laughs> I should have done. <laughs> Except A, I had no friends and. B, no one called me Michael, no. except my mum and dad. Um, but next thing, this this creature, it literally was a creature, sort of hunchback creature, very unpleasant looking, with very strange orange hair sticking out and short and mm. horrible guy. And he comes going, all right, Phil! He was like, ah, fuck off, Johnny, now. And he's like... I fucking hate these parties. They're so boring. I'm thinking, who is this horrible cunt, you know? <laughs> anyway, so they, they have a bit of a laugh and Phil Garth, fuck off, Johnny. Pushes him away. And Pete is finished talking to Phil, so we go over to the bar. And I said to Pete, who is that awful bloke? And he goes, oh, Johnny Rotten. I went, what? He goes, Johnny Rotten. I went, oh, fuck off. That's not his name. He goes, yeah. Johnny Rotten. There's just I'd never heard it, you know. Of course you know who that was. Yes. Um I think he does ads for I can't believe it's not butter or something recently, is it? <laughs> well these days he's a Trump supporting monarchist, you know, so <laughs> Which the, the most unlikely turn of events in the world, but anyway. Yeah. He's also fat as fuck, you know. I saw terrible. that. Was he not ill though? I think he was ill. No, it's his wife, Nora. Oh, right, okay. She, she's very old. I think it's like dementia and... Okay. And um, I don't know why that would necessarily make him fat, other than I think he just spends all day drinking beer and smoking fags and looking after Nora. Hmm. Um, anyway, I thought, blimey, this writing for the music paper stuff, you know, it might have its benefits, you know. So, uh, in a very long roundabout way, that was what first gave me the thought of maybe I could do that. Hmm. So I'd always been okay at writing. In fact, it was the only thing I was good at at school. Some might say you still are okay at writing. <laughs> um, 
and so literally almost a year a year later i had my very first review published in sounds Bukowski had nothing to do with it i didn't tell him i kept it all secret because right. if if i did if i did get published i wanted it to be because i had written something worth publishing yeah fair enough but but so but that was a start for me but then cut 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 get to 1979 and I'm working as a very junior member of a publicity company called Heavy Publicity and that was where I started to get to know Thin Lizzy. Thin Lizzy weren't one of their clients but Wild Horses were one of their clients and that was the band Brian Robertson formed with Jimmy Bain. Robbo had just been kicked out of Lizzy for the second time and Jimmy had just been fired from Rainbow. Mm. But here was what was odd for me was what I discovered writing for sounds was that you almost never met anybody that you once bought a record by. You were always sent to write about Egypts you'd never heard of yeah, and that you'd never hear of again, you know, because I was the lo- on the lowest rung. So unusually for me, through working with Wild Horses, uh, Lina and all the guys had always come to their shows. And they would always go to their shows and I'd be amongst that gang that went. And that was very strange because you mentioned Live and Dangerous. Yeah. That for me is their best album. Um, because when I listen back to their old their records from that period now, they to me they sound dreadful. They sound so thin and weedy. The production is shite, you know. Mm. Um, uh, but Live and Dangerous, it, it was... It was that Toontown moment where you go through the tunnel in black and white, you come out and it's all colour and cartoons. And So I, would, I was seriously grooving to that. And then just after that, while that's still going on, I meet the band and I'm one of the guys working with the bands. Wild Horses toured with Thin Lizzy. And, uh, and that was quite weird, getting to know Phil but still going home at night and playing live and dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, it's it, You hear a lot of words used to describe Phil, like he was a poet. People often say about his lyrics, he could be very charming, um, but like he could be gregarious yet shy. How did you find him in person? Did he have those elements you often hear about rock stars where he's outgoing yet introverted at the same time? Because that's the kind of picture I've drawn up in my head from various things people have said over the years about him. Um, He definitely had a sensitive side and he was a poet and he did write that stuff. Um, By the time I got to know him, you know, he was in his full bloom uh, and the, the drugs were everywhere not just for them, but for all the bands back then, but kind of especially him because he was the man, you know, when he walked in the room, all eyes went on him Mm. and he was very charismatic. Um, But he was very quietly spoken, Uh, but he was very, very quick witted. You know, I, I, I always tell a story of being with him, not long before he died, a few months before he died, he was doing a telly thing and I was the presenter and we were in the make, happened to be in the make, tiny little makeup room together. And we're sat there with our bibs on. You've got to make small talk. 
And for some fucking reason, I've no idea why I said this. Because I look back and I cringe. But I said to him, you know, did, do you ever regret it that you didn't make it in America? You know, because mm. they, they should have done. And anyway, I, I hate doing the accent in front of you because <laughs> it makes me such a fucking idiot. But it's hard to tell without trying to imitate how he would deliver it. But he said, oh, yeah, you know. He goes, but it's a bit like regretting you didn't fuck Kate Bush. You know, it's, <laughs> of course it's a regret, but yeah. you know, what are you going to do, you know? Mm. Um, so he was very witty, uh, but he was a hard man. You know, uh, Lizzie and Wild Horses shared a lot of the same roadies and crews, and, and there was one guy, Big Charlie, who's now dead. He was you know, one of the big figures in the Lizzie Road crew, and again for horses uh, when Lizzie weren't working. <coughs> and I remember him saying to me his uh, audition for the job uh, when he sat down with Phil, because Phil was the hirer and the firer. No one else was involved. He really was the leader. Yeah. And uh, instead of saying, oh, you know, well, I probably asked him what other bands he'd work with, but you know, how are you on the lights or whatever it is, he just said, can you fight? Yeah, and Big Charlie, Big Charlie said, "Yeah, you got the job." Yeah, you know, you got to know how to fight to work for Thin Lizzy. And in fairness, what people that weren't around in those days need to be reminded of is that you know there was no production, there were no mobile phones. Uh, you could be in the middle of mo most shows would take place in a place called the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Every now and again, you'd hit London or Dublin or Manchester mm. or New York or wherever it might be. But 99% of the shows are in places you are in the middle of fucking nowhere. And quite often you would come across trouble and you, if you couldn't handle it, you were dead. So that fighting thing was a regular occurrence. I mean, when I worked with wild horses, um, they did a, a, a show at the Porterhouse in Retford, which is a tiny, shitty club in the Midlands. We used to call it the Slaughterhouse, Retford, <laughs> um, because it was just a, always trouble. But I remember the band were on stage, and this guy in the audience, drunk, was you know heckling and. He kind of went to charge the stage, and Robbo literally mid solo just took his guitar off, swung it, battered this guy straight across the head. Mm. Guy goes flying. Robbo back on with the guitar. Diddly diddly diddly. <laughs> yeah. They could see the guy's mates going, yeah, and Robbo's going, yeah, fucking. I mean, that's what it was like. Um, yeah. Yeah. I often wonder when I hear these stories, like. Do, did people just go to shows then? I'm sidetracking a small bit, but did it just go to shows to cause trouble? Like, or were they being a Tin Lizzy fan and they got too drunk and then they were like, fuck it, I'm going to heckle? Or what was it like? Both. Both, because because tickets were cheap in those days. Mm. So, I mean, I used to do it myself. You'd, you'd go to a venue for your night out. You know, like these days, Friday night comes, should we go to that pub that we always go to? Or what will we do, you know? Uh... Places like the uh, the Slaughterhouse, the Porterhouse, Retford. There was JB's in Dudley. We used to call it Junkies in Dudley. Mm. Um, and it was 50p to get in, you know, or a quid. 
quid if you were big. 75p, you know. Yeah. Because bands made no money touring. The the touring was purely to help sell the records, and the records were what made the money. These days, of course, it's the complete opposite. The opposite yeah. So so not only like is 75p it's it's also relatively cheaper back in 1977 as in like it represents a much smaller fraction of your wage basically so oh it's tiny it's tiny yeah. i mean you know price of a pint you know two pints maybe hmm. um pint and a packet of fags um so you would in the club obviously if you're buying a, a ticket for a concert that's different you're all going there because it's a concert yeah. but to get into some club in the middle of nowhere that's just where they went on a tuesday night or whatever it was mm. um and so yeah well you you i mean uh a friend of mine ian jeffrey he was the tour manager for acdc around exactly this time mm. uh 70, 76 77 and he's and and these days he he does U two and Lady Gaga right, and he said these days you literally push a button on a laptop, and you go and have dinner while the band do their thing. He said in the seventies he said every single night was going to war, <laughs> because th- there were no uh, productions. You just had to play, and people. We're used to seeing lots of bands all the time on that circuit because, like I say, it was cheap and accessible. Yeah. Um, and you had to win them over. It, it, you know, by the time you get to, you know, the big shows, people in the audience are your fans. At these shows, you're playing to maybe a few fans, but mainly you're playing to people that are waiting to be entertained yeah, or impressed. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah we you. had fucking horse lips in here last week, mate. You're nothing. <laughs> we had Rory Gallagher. That's a fucking musician. What are yeah. you, load of fucking puffs, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was going to war every night. And did you ever see Phil himself have to go to war? Or are there any stories that you have about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Um, at the... Uh, what do you call it? You know, like uh, the playback of the Black Rose album, mm. and then and then there's the reception, which is the party. So everybody sits there dutifully listening to the record. You know, which in those cases, in those days, mercifully was about thirty five minutes. You know, for an album. <laughs> These days, someone goes come to a playback. You're like, oh fucking hell, there goes an hour and a half. You know, yeah, Jesus Christ. Um. And you and you'd have drinks with you and fag. You'd be listening and chatting, you know. And half an hour later, you're in the bar. So um, now, one of the things Phil, uh, one of his habits, he loved Ireland, but he understood. He knew the history. He used to read all about it. Scott Gorham said to me once, he goes, "We'd be in Ireland, and Phil would get us up early in the morning to go and visit some well." You know, and he'd be, well, you see, boys, here in 1503, your man, Fergal, fought the battle of the two dead English guys who deserved <laughs> to die. Um, and Scott would be going, oh, for fuck's sake, man. Yeah. You know. um, so Phil was very proud of what he called my people. Hmm. Now, there was a, a melody maker journalist in those days called Alan Jones, who was a Welshman. 
and he's still around. He ended up being the big editor on Uncut magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, great writer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Really good writer, but, you know, like most Celts, he loved a drink. And and he was just famous for getting in rock stars' faces. Um, you know, there's a famous photo of Alan, completely pissed, talking to Lou Reed in the mm. 70s. And Lou Reed's, you know, like, I'm Lou Reed and you're all scum. And Jonesy's in his face going, oh, fuck it. <laughs> Go on, Jonesy. Go on, you know. Yeah. So Phil's at the bar, waxing lyrical about my people. And this is a quote, okay? So I know these days people get very nervous around this sort of language, but this is 1979. Um, and Phil's, my people. And Jonesy, pissed, goes up and he goes, which people are they, Phil? The paddies or the niggers? Yep. And Phil literally turned round and smacked him straight in the face. And Phil had hands like shovels, you know. Yeah, yeah. Smacked him... And Jones, like in a cowboy movie, he just went all the way down the bar, flat out. Meanwhile, the Lizzie Roadies are fucking coming over now, and they pick him up. They literally one, yeah, two out the door. <laughs> right, um, but think, but Phil at the bar. Here's another thing he used to do all the time, because he would always he, he he couldn't stay home at night. He would always go to gigs, pubs. Uh, no security, hmm. um, just Phil. I, I, of course, everywhere he went, he had friends, you know, that would look, yeah, look yeah. out for him. And on this particular occasion, I was that friend, uh, unwittingly. Um, so we go into this pub in Hammersmith, and um, it's fairly empty, it's early. And we go to the bar, and uh, we, I, we get the drinks, and he says to me, do me a favour. Go and grab a table. I'll be over in a minute. I went, okay. He said, give me a moment. Go and grab a table. I went, okay. So I go and sit at this table in this fairly empty pub, and he stood at the bar. It's hard to show you on a screen, but he stood at the bar. He's kind of like this with his head down, you know, like, you know, sad. Yeah. You know. And I swear to God, Fergal, first one, then another, a girl comes up on this side. And then a girl comes up on this side, and they're going, are you all right, Phil? <laughs> oh, well, darling, you know, yeah, it's tough at the top, you know. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, Phil, oh, Phil, oh, no, Phil, you know. Phil. 
Ah, well, you know. And so after about five minutes of this, he brings them both back to the table where I'm sitting, Mm. like the booby prize, you know. (laughs) Please, God, let me get Phil, not the other bloke. Um, Being Phil... Uh, neither one of them got me, but they both got Phil. Yeah. <laughs> and I swear, I swear to God, Fergal, after about 20, you know, we're all having a drink and a chat. And the next thing, him and one of these girls have gone to the toilet. One's gone, and then one's gone. And they're gone for about 20 minutes. And, uh, and then they come back in. He's taken her out the back, hasn't he, and shagged her. Um, and they come back in, and, and it's so obvious, but she's like all lit up, and he's, you know, he's looking for another drink. Mm. So another 20 minutes, and he disappears with the other girl out the back, and eventually comes back. Some man. And I'm thinking, it, it, is it my turn yet? <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever try that head down on the bar move yourself? <laughs> <laughs> oh, many times. But, you know, people just, in my case, people just sort of drift away. They go, oh, fucking hell, look at the weird guy. Don't go near that guy. He looks like a fucking, you know, terrorist. Mm. So um, he was very, he, he had the patter. He yeah. really had the patter. But he was very much a kind of a man's man. I mean, the, the big love of his life before he got to England, and then during those early years in England, was a lady called Gail Claydon, who actually came from Northern Ireland, uh, but ended up in Dublin in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm. And, and then by the mid-80s, she's a TV producer producing the Monsters of Rock show on Sky, yeah. which is how I met her. And uh, anyway, she was telling me not so long ago I was doing a thing on Phil for a magazine and I rang her. She's retired now. And she was saying, uh, I asked her how she met him. She said it was her birthday party at this place in Dublin. You know, she was a young woman sharing a house with other friends or students or whatever. Big party. The whole house rammed with crazy stuff. And, um, And she went to bed. Eventually, the party's over. It's four in the morning or something. She goes to bed. She goes, next thing, there's a little gentle knock on the door. And Phil comes in. And he sits on the bed. And she said he was the most gentle, charming, amazing guy. And he just completely won her heart. Mm. She goes, it was only later I found out he'd already screwed two other girls that night at the party. (laughs) Hmm. Um, so he was, uh, he was, uh, that's who he was, but he also wrote poetry. He wrote great songs. For me, that's, that's losing a life obviously is the ultimate price to pay. But long before Phil died, I think his talent really suffered because of the drugs, but specifically heroin. Yeah. Um, because he didn't write anymore, you know. He didn't write stories or poems. He didn't write for pleasure. He didn't get inspired and write. And, and you know, you mentioned Renegade. Uh, you know, I, I always felt that was a very sort of disappointing album in the context of what he'd achieved before. Mm-hmm. Thunder, and, Thunder and Lightning was like 
the unforeseen amazing comeback. He'd, uh, against against all odds, it seemed at the time, yeah. he'd, made, he'd made a great Thin Lizzy album, one of the very best in my view, when he had John Sykes in the band. There's some beautiful lyrics on the song Renegade, though. I'm just going to read out a few of them here. And it seems to be very autobiographical at this point. He's like, he's just a boy that has lost his way. He's a rebel that has fallen down. He's a fool that's blown away. To you and me, he's a renegade. He's a clown that we put down. He's a man that doesn't fit. He's a king, but not in this town. To you and me, he's a renegade. Wow. It's like the juxtaposition of his confidence and insecurity right there. He he wrote a lot of very kind of elegiac, that's how you say it, songs in the last few years um, of his life or his career with Lizzie, certainly. Um, songs about small towns and, um, you know, boys that are lost. I mean, even like as far back as Black Rose, got to give it up, you know. Yeah. Mama, you, your son has gone down the whiskey. Or I can't remember the words, but, you know, there was a lot of your boy, your wonderful boy has got lost in this terrible world. He wrote a lot of those. Yeah. Um, but that's an interesting point you raised. So maybe he was still good. A friend of mine, Jonathan, I told him I was going to be chatting to you today. He's a big Tin Lizzy fan. Um, and he mentioned that he had, he felt Phil Linnett had, Linnett had a very good way of presenting both sides of the story in a song. And that's a good example there. He's like a clown and a renegade, you know, a rebel, but a figure that's, you know, to be pitied at the same time. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I get it. I mean, Phil's uh, cunning plan was to do a Rod Stewart. You know, um, by 1980, I think he'd correctly surmised that Lizzie were as big as they were ever going to be. They really had blown their chance in America. Yeah. Uh, these days, of course, we realise that uh, these things can come full circle. But back then... No one thought we'd still be talking about this 40 years later. You know, it was, it was yeah. either now or never. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, was solo in Soho uh, and the follow-up. I can't remember the name of the follow-up. The Philip Liner album. Um, uh, in his mind, that was going to be his transition to being a full-time solo star. He had Midjour writing with mm. him. He was trying to do music that wasn't in, ju- wasn't just guitar based, um, and it didn't quite happen. Um, and and I do I feel strongly that I can't help but feel because I was there I was in the studio when they were making solo in Soho, and it was just drugs everywhere. I am not anti drugs, I am anti fucking up. Yeah. Um, and at that point, he there would be 12 people in the room. It was this tiny studio in Soho, yeah. and it was weird. The actual control room where the guy is with the desk, it was Kit Wolven at the time. A uh, couple of chairs behind him. And then there was like a, like in a theatre, there was like a, a, a tier, like two or three, like giant steps, and people would sort of sit on there. And I remember Paula Yates was there this night. Geldof was there, but no one was paying any attention. Paulie Yates was there sitting on the sitting on the top step, Fergal, in a very short skirt and no knickers. <laughs> okay. And she's on the top tier, so she's in your eye line. Okay? And Geldof, you know, we've all 
we've all either been there ourselves or we've had mates and we've seen it going on. He doesn't know what to do, you know, because she's the boss. Yeah. But he he always wants to be seen as the boss. Mm. And he, and in London, he was, you know, people like, you know, something the Irish and I think the Scots have in common, definitely not the Welsh, but the Irish and the Scots, along with maybe black people, of course, Phil was two of those. Um, in London, they're, they're very kind of venerated. They're kind of, oh, Jesus, you know, don't mess with that guy, you know. Um, so Geldof was always surrounded by acolytes, music press people up his ass, everybody. Because, you know, he's a big mouth. And, yeah. you know, so he took charge of the room until he walked into a room where Phil was. Mm. And then he turned into a gibbering, silly boy, Egypt. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and Lina actually gave Geldof some heroin once, specifically so that he'd pass out and Phil could fuck Paula in the next room. Jesus Christ. Well, I'm glad he gave Geldof the heroin and not Paula, so that's, that's a good thing. So, so Paula's in there with her legs wide open and no knickers on and the tiniest skirt you've ever seen. And even when you're deliberately not looking, you're look, you've suddenly got eyeballs here. You, know, you mm. can see. Mm-hmm. And uh, peripheral and vision. Just, that's right. You develop it. It's Darwinian. <laughs> In those circumstances, a Darwinian male thing <laughs> takes over, and suddenly you have eyes like a fly. You know, um, and you cannot unsee what you mm. are seeing. Um, uh, without meaning to get too base, you know, they they didn't shave in those days either. So you know, oh right. yeah. Kate Bush. So, um, and Phil's Phil's just laughing and laughing and paying no attention because he was, you know, like I say, he had all kinds of women every day and every night. Um, So anyway, I guess back to my point is that I don't see that as conducive to making great art, whether it's music. I mean, Obviously, if you're writing, you don't imagine there'd be 12 Egypts in the room and women with no knickers and people drinking and doing drugs because mm. you're writing. But music, Phil Liner, Thin Lizzy, that music, that was all about the crack, all about breaking rules, all about giving two fingers to the law, you know, yeah. all that stuff. There a couple of things that you just made me think of there and you mentioned like yes a few minutes ago that these things can come full circle now so i assume you're referring to like a band could have a second go around um firstly do you think phil line star sean brighter while he was alive or since he's been dead Mm, very tricky um i don't know if it's sean brighter because uh very Sad, disappointingly for me, I don't think he gets the recognition he deserves. Right. Um, on the other hand, the legend does still live on, and here mm. we are talking about a beautiful statue in Dublin and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, there's a statue of Lemmy outside the Rainbow in LA. You know, statues are great. Phil's is more significant because it's proper in the town. Mm-hmm. But try and get the man in the street, the woman in the street, to name more than three Thin Lizzy songs. There's The Boys Are Back in Town. Whiskey in the Jar um, and, I don't know, uh, Jailbreak. 
I don't even know if they'd say jailbreak. I think they might no. say um, dancing in the moonlight. Dancing in the moonlight, yeah, okay. But or Sa- even Sarah, maybe they were big hits mm. here. But I think, do you know what? I think it boils down to the boys are back in town. You know, yeah. um, and they could probably name more Bon Jovi songs. Uh, or maybe one more at least. Well, um, Bon Jovi have the luxury of having a f- having had a far longer career with far more albums, and they had hits twenty years into their career as well. I think, like, or fifteen at least. Right, and and that's partly because uh, they they by the time they came along, the ear was quickly went into CD, quickly went into one album every two years. You know, Slippery When Wet came out in 86 mm. the follow-up wasn't until 1988 mm. new jersey jailbreak comes out well, april may 76 johnny the fox comes out october november 76 yes yeah. uh, bad reputation comes out summer of 77 um you know they were on a treadmill um uh, and they, and those weren't their first albums. Those were what their sixth, seventh, eighth albums. Yeah. Um, so it was a different era because bands weren't expected to last. If you got two years was the shelf life. Mm. Five years, well, blimey, you you've made it in America, or 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 you really have had a few hits. No one would go twenty. Th- I mean, just it wasn't even yeah. in your thoughts. Um, so. So, uh, I think because he was a huge star, Fergal over here. You know, he was a judge on the Miss World competition. You know, um, he was one of those guys would turn up on the talk shows, yeah, and everybody, everybody recognised him. He was always in the tabloids, um, and there were always kiss and tells women saying how he'd shagged them and left them and all this. You know, because that never happens in rock. You know, um, yeah. Uh, so he really was a household name in, in that regard, um, and I just feel I just feel you know he, he was so charming. If you look at the early clips, he's smiling in nearly all of them. Hmm. You know, I mean, there's in Sarah the cheapest video ever made, where he's sitting on a stool miming, um, and at the end, I think one a, a series of girls comes over and. He hugs them or something, and they disappear. And then right at the end, Scott Gorham comes on, and they sort of hug and kiss, and it's all funny. Yeah, you know, it was a it was a great humour and charm to them. They could make fun. Hmm. By the time you get to Chinatown, um, and 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 Thunder and Lightning. If you look at the clips of Thunder and Lightning, he looks like a man who's on his last fucking legs he's, he's doing yeah. his best to hold it together he's overweight he's pouring with sweat and although they were great songs uh i just feel that that you know he was his own worst enemy but to, to finish the point um they clearly could have come back you know i mean look at thunder thunder who aren't fit to wipe thin lizzie's ass that came back a few years ago, and their last couple of albums have all been top five in the mm. UK. Um, not that that means anything anymore, but you know they're they're working, and I well, think it's better than being in the top ninety-five. So it means something. It means something, yes, in mm. terms of prestige. 
But think of the festivals. Who wouldn't pay to see Thin Lizzy? Yeah, that's what I've always thought. Um, but and in America, like, I think too. It's an alternate timeline where, like, he doesn't die from heroin and alcohol abuse complications. But let's say he had it kicked. It. You're, you, I would envisage that they'd be still a big festival band even now. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they'd be huge. You know, Do you think, all, all these. Sorry, oh, sorry, go on. No, you go on. No, I was going to say you think of White Snake or yeah. Black Sabbath or Journey or mm. you know all these bands that uh, were pre-internet cla- classic rock bands. Yeah, uh, Def Leppard and Motley Crue have just made like two hundred million dollars each in America. You know, they're playing um, um, Marley Park in Dublin, which is the biggest ever gig Def Leppard Leppard have attempted to play in Dublin, and the first time ever for Motley Crue. Um, which is madness at this stage of their career. But it'll definitely sell a shitload of tickets, if not sell out. And the thing is, Fergal, most of the people that will go to those shows weren't even alive when Hysteria by Def Leppard came out, or they were children. And that's the last album by Def Leppard anybody fucking knows. I mean, I know (laughs) they insist on still putting out records, and and I love Def Leppard. I really love them, and I love all the people. I've got a lot of history with them. But the only reason they still make records, as Joe will tell you, is because they want to, not yeah. because they sell or anybody pays any attention, you know. So this show, the the biggest ever, <laughs> yeah, will be to see a band who lasted anything decent in 87. Hmm. It's insane. 36 years ago, it will be by the time. Uh, One final thing. I know you like to keep these things to an hour, and that's been a great discussion, so maybe we could wrap it up here. Um, He's getting rid of me. He's getting rid... He's had enough. He's had enough. I know you do. Um, Do you think... Not when I'm um, talking to you, though, Fergal. (laughs) Even though... Half an hour with you. (laughs) Very good. Even though Tin Lizzy weren't an active thing at the time, um, do you think Geldof snubbed them from Live Aid because of the situation you just explained in the studio there because it seems to be a glaring omission it's horrifying i mean i uh, someone recently was telling me about a book called beetle bone i don't know if you know it but i've never heard no. of it so i've i ordered it and i've i've had a bit of a look um it, it it's fiction but it's about uh, a time when and this never happened in real life but apparently it nearly did. John Lennon, in his latter days in New York in the 70s, he couldn't leave America because he was fighting the green card thing. But there came a moment where I think he'd got the green card, or it definitely looked like it was on on the cards, and he was planning to come to Ireland to go out to the West Coast, to a certain island island off the West Coast of Ireland. Mm. Um. And it never happened in the end, but the book is about if it had happened. Yeah. Um, and I found that very, very interesting. And and this person said to me, has said to me many times, you should do a book about Phil. And you can use this as your kind of, not template, but uh, an idea how you could do it. And I was thinking, or I have been thinking, a book about, because, you know, you went to Dublin on the day of Live Aid. He couldn't yeah, bear to be he in did London. did some telly thing or something. He he turned up. He wasn't invited. Mm. He turned up at RTE and, and whatever the big radio station 
uh, is probably our same the game. Same, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and was there kind of was commentating on it with them as their sort of celebrity, but yeah. they hadn't invited him. He just turned up because he was yeah. a loose end, and that breaks my fucking heart. And well, I was thinking about doing a book about, um, you know, that day or that mm. week. But here's the thing, Fergal. It wasn't just Geldof. It was Midjour. Yeah, you know, Midjour. Who was his mate? Uh, well. So was Geldof, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Mitchell had been in, uh, what the fuck were they called? Silk. One big number one. These days you'd call them a boy band. Zero yeah. credibility and no more hits. And then he ended up in The Rich Kids, which was the band Glenn Matlock formed after being sacked from the Pistols. And and they got a lot of press and sold fuck all. Mm-hmm. Um and then he joined Ultravox, but there was this period because Ultravox were managed by Morrison O'Donnell, who managed Lizzie and Wild right. Horses. So we were involved on the periphery. We did PR for a few things, but Ultravox had become uncool in the wake of punk. And Ultravox mm. had never been remotely big in the first place. They never had a hit. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. just had a lot. Of, had a lot of press. So in that transition period, in the summer of. 79 uh gary moore walks out on lizzie on tour in america with journey Mm. and this was their make or fucking break that they'd already cancelled two big tours promoters are going right this is it if you fuck this up you're dead yeah and gary moore fucked off left a note on the pillow you know the walk of shame Mm. and uh and they brought midjure in yeah which I, I thought they should have got Robbo. But anyway, they brought Midjure in and, you know, that was like a square peg in a round hole. But he did his best. But it really lifted his profile. And then Midge worked with him on Solo in Soho. Yeah. And they wrote Yellow Peril, which turned into Yellow Pearl, the top of the pops theme. And some other things as synthesizers. You know, Phil fucking helped that boy. Got management, mm. got him in Thin Lizzy, yeah. got him on his solo album. Mm. And then the year after the solo album, Vienna becomes a hit. Mm-hmm. So cut to four year, well, three, three or four years later with the first Band-Aid single. Oh, yeah. Why wasn't Phil on that? Mm-hmm. Fucking Midge, who owed him everything. Yeah. Geldof, who Liner had you know, taken under his wing in, the, in Dublin and then in London. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, there was a mm-hmm. thing with Paula, but are you telling me Phil was the only one that ever got his leg over with Paula Yates <laughs> while she was with miserable yeah. Geldof, you know? Um, mm. It just seems like um, the timing would have been perfect for them to do a three or four song set like Led Zeppelin did or whoever, um, and Black Sabbath did, and then maybe that would have pushed them in the right direction it would have instead been, of pushing them off a cliff. It would have been perfect, Fergal. Black Sabbath, the original lineup, hadn't they didn't exist. That wasn't an ongoing thing. Just did it for Live Aid. Yeah. Led mm-hmm. Zeppelin just did it for Live Aid. Yeah. Um, status quo, people go on about quo. What no one ever hits on is they'd broken up 18 months before. They'd done their farewell tour. Um, yeah. But back for Live Aid. So there was absolutely no reason why Thin Lizzy wouldn't have brought mm. the house down. Boys are back in town, and and anything else they wanted to play, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I really love things like Warrior, and oh yeah, oh yeah, 
um, Massacre. <gasps> Fantastic song as well. Down from the Glen came the marching men. Yeah, I need to tell you what Glen. Wait, no, that's that's Emerald, is it now? Oh, sorry, it is. Ma- ma- massacre would... <laughs> is at a point below zero. Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Did yeah. you see that? Uh, there was a great clip of them doing it. Oh, I'm getting confused here with Robbo. Ah, I, I posted it after the Bataclan catastrophe possibly you, have yeah, possibly yeah but um, no no you're right you're right and that was emerald yeah yeah not like me to make a mistake i blame you entirely never but, never but, it's probably because i've kept you on here too long no no well, that, I, that's what it is um no but seriously to me the only re- i have not, I, I i can offer you no concrete proof other than some things you just know yeah the only reason Thin Lizzy, who would have bitten Geldof's fucking arm off, didn't do Live Aid, uh, live aid or Band Aid, which was unforgivable. His fucking banana rama. Where's Phil? Yeah. Um, was because Geldof, mid-year, I don't think he had any say, but Geldof didn't want him there. Mm. Admittedly, he was, you know, he was fucking high maintenance. You know, he, ne- he never stopped yeah, with the heroin. It, there was no period where... Can would- he have been any more high-maintenance high than Ozzy Osbourne, though, in fairness? Well, <laughs> like- well, yeah, but Ozzy was in America. Sharon, you can rely on her to fucking sort it out. Plus, yeah. he wasn't Geldof's mate. He wouldn't be... I think Geldof... I think there were many reasons. He wanted to be the most famous Irishman that day, apart from your man Bono, obviously. Mm. But, I think at that, but I think at that point, even Geldof was more... F- famous and sought after them but yeah well they were only on the ascent then like they hadn't had their enormous joshua tree success in fact that so geldof probably would have been more famous in fact that gig helped push them to the next level now i i agree i mean gorham has told me many times how he went after the the farewell thunder and lightning tour ends in 83 um he goes back to america gets clean and sober Um, because Brian Downey was never into any of that stuff. Um, John Sykes had left for Whitesnake, but that's okay. We've had a shit ton of guitarists. We can get another one. Mm. Um, He went to visit Phil when he got back, and and, and Scott is now healthy, clean, sober, as he is today. Yeah. And he went to Seaford. He He said to me, he goes, it was like I just left the room and came back five minutes later. Nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. And and Phil said to him, let's get the band back together. And Scott yeah. said, Phil, I would love to get the band back together, but not until you get yourself sorted. And yeah. Phil, as always, was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm doing that now. I, I'm going to get myself sorted. We're going to mm. reform the band. So it's a very sad story. Um, yeah. But I personally will never forgive whoever's decision it was, Bob, um, I will never <laughs> forgive them. I will never forgive them for not including Thin Lizzy in that show. That to me was a fucking terrible shit thing to do. Hmm. Um, to finish up, you mentioned to me yesterday that uh, on the 4th of January, Phil Linet will be dead longer than yeah. he was alive. It'll be the 37th yeah. anniversary of his death and he died at 36 in about five months, um, which is kind of... It takes you back a bit when you when you read that. That's um, 
a life that's now shorter than the period that he's been dead. Absolutely. Uh, I was 27 when Phil died. Um, and it was really shocking because I, I, you'd see him around, you know, and I had seen mm. him. He'd been on the show because he had that record at 19 just a oh, few yeah. months before and he'd been on the show and yeah, he as you he, he'd been sweating and overweight for a long time. Um, he always had a cold, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But I didn't the dying no, I didn't see that coming at all. I was too young to have known many people that had died without being seriously ill with something. Um, but now, but and also I was twenty seven, so thirty six was uh, it wasn't young to me. Now it just seems incredibly young. Mm-hmm. There's there's no such thing as you're old enough to die, but there mm. is, I think, just too young. And he was yeah. too young. And I think it's particularly um, jarring for me. I turned thirty seven last month. Um so both of those numbers are like relevant to my <laughs> to my life. So uh, you're you're now older than Phil Lynott was when he died. Yeah, so and what, what have what I have, done? Well, no, I was thinking, you know, you better look, keep looking over your shoulder, mate. That spectre, <laughs> that spectre could reach any of us at any time, you know. I think I see a spectre in your in your house there, Mickey. You better keep an eye out as well. <laughs> no, that's the one in my eyes. Oh. <laughs> so listen, before we go, mm-hmm. uh, Christmas, what are you doing? Yep. Um, well, I'm finished work today. Uh, I will go visit my parents for a couple of days. Elaine will be with me. Um, so we'll do that. And we're just going to relax and do very little else between now and whenever I'm back to work. The 3rd of January, I think. Yeah. Possibly a small sherry at some point. Maybe one or two. Yeah. 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 Well, don't small go sherry. mad. Don't go no. mad because we all know we all know you get challenged in that area. You know, So be careful now. <laughs> Yes, very good. Well, we were I hope spo- you we have. Were, we were we were supposed to do this three days ago, okay? <laughs> on Tuesday, today is a Friday as we're doing this. We're meant to do it on Tuesday. I'm mm-hmm. sat here like an Egypt. He's going red. Look, I'm sat here like an Egypt, <laughs> waiting for the your host will let you in as soon as he remembers what fucking day it is. So. Time goes by, I message him, right, I've got to go and do something else. Maybe we'll do this another time. A few hours later, I get a message going, oh, so sorry, I thought it was Monday today. Another message, yeah. I must have lost Monday. I'm going, mm. are you all right, mate? I mean, yeah. and then, and then finally, he gets it together to sort out today, and he sends me a link for yesterday. So all I'm saying, Fergal, is whatever's going on, just remember Phil. Uh, I don't. I didn't send you a link for yesterday. You fucking did. You, on on the Tuesday or the Wednesday when you finally woke up, you sent me a link, <laughs> and then you sent another one saying, "Oh, sorry, I made that for so, Thursday. Uh, I was meant to make." I sent it you a link. Yeah. On the rearranged day, but I accidentally set it for that day. That's very easy to do in Zoom. It just defaults to that well, day itself. So, <laughs> And then he sent me the link two more times. I got two more of the same fucking link ah, today. I didn't know which one to click. Ah, no. 
Ah, now, now. You got there in the end, didn't you? Now, now, now. Anyway, so. Right. Oh. Well, I hope you have a miserable Christmas, because that's what you want. I missed that. You hope I have a miserable Christmas? Well, yeah, that's what I think you would enjoy, because you hate Christmas, so I hope it's (laughs) adequately miserable. Anyway, listen, you've been great company all year, and people don't understand what a great supporter and help you've been uh, to me with the pod and many other things. And it was great to meet you and Elaine in Dublin uh, a couple of months ago. We will definitely do that again. We'll just yes. have to try and persuade the pub to unbar you, you know, because the the <laughs> they were like, "You're get out to him, you know, and I had to apologize. But uh, yeah. So we'll fix uh, that. My, we'll my mother used there. to say, I'm the type of person you can only take to a place twice the second time to apologize. So that sounds about right. <laughs> I love it. Well done, my friend. Have a wonderful Christmas and to everybody out there. All right. You too. I will chat to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How do I stop this, Fern? <laughs>